At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, we remember Sandra Bland. This week is the fifth anniversary of her death in a Texas jail, July 13th, 2015. What happened to Sandra Bland? To understand that, you have to begin way before she died. Debbie Nathan will report on the life as well as the death of Sandra Bland. Also later in this hour, another episode of The Children's Hour, Amy Willens with stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. But first, we want to talk about Dr. Anthony Fauci. Revered as the doctor to listen to on the subject of COVID-19, even though he's part of the Trump administration. For comment, we turn to Mike Davis. Of course, he's written frequently for The Nation and lots of other places on the politics and science of coronaviruses. He's the author of many books, including a brand new one. It's called The Monster Enters, COVID-19, Avian Flu, and the Plagues of Capitalism. It was published July 2nd by OR Books. We reached him today at home in San Diego. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. Well, Fauci has managed to avoid being fired by Trump while speaking often about the dangers of COVID-19. Just last week, he testified before Congress. He said we could soon see 100,000 new cases every day. And he urged everybody to wear masks and maintain social distance. And this, of course, is while Trump and Mike Pence have been talking this happy talk about beating the coronavirus. But you do not regard Fauci as a hero. You say he's acted repeatedly as an apologist for Trump. Apologist is a strong word. Didn't he warn about the danger very early on in the medical press, as early as late January and early February? Didn't he openly express pessimism there that a new virus could be contained? He did. But Dr. Fauci tends to speak in two voices at the end of January and all the way until the second week of March, he was insisting that the virus was of low danger to most Americans. At the same time, having given that soundbite to the press, he would qualify that remark by saying something like, but there's a strong possibility that we may have clusters of this or the outbreaks may, may grow worse. This follows in the line of it kind of politics he's practiced for the 38, 39 years he's been head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. And he's several times talked about this in the last year or so. And his maxims are to speak the truth, but never make war or start a war with the president. And he's mastered a style of being outspoken and deferential at the same time. In previous administrations, this has served him well, allowed him to develop close relations with presidents, particularly the two Bushes and Obama. 
which have resulted in some remarkable achievements, the most important of which she became a really uh, important influence on George W. Bush, who was already interested in AIDS, already upset about it, whatever his many, many other uh, sins were. And he asked Fauci to design a program because at that point, antiretrovirals were available to most Americans infected with HIV, but not in any of the poor countries in the world. So they crafted together something that became the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. And this has made antiretrovirals available in South Africa and other poor areas. It saved hundreds of thousands, probably millions of lives. So Fauci had a lot of success being the, as he always put it, non-political and non-ideological, particularly with these two Republican presidents. But he's tried and attempted to use the same method in the Trump administration. And my argument is that maybe in the first month or two, there was some hope of using this kind of uh, president whispering general persuasion to achieve some of the emergency goals at hand in terms of of testing and then the uh, implementation of social distancing and closures. But after that point, uh, to the end of, of March, yes, he was telling us the truth, but he wasn't protesting or even highlighting the most disastrous and criminal decisions of the Trump administration. I know that he kept a low profile when Bolton, who was the head of the National Security Council, purged the Directorate for Global Health Security, which monitored things like coronaviruses. And I know that he didn't protest when uh, Trump shut down the emergency pandemic threats predict program, which actually had observation stations in Wuhan. So, okay, uh, Fauci was silent at some key moments when he should have spoken out publicly against Trump. But silence is not the same thing as as lying, as making untruthful statements. Well, of course, he did lie. He and uh, the CDC director, Robert Redfield, launched a campaign to convince the public that masks were unnecessary, that they were useless, and at its height of even telling people that they could be dangerous. Okay, he said in March that masks were unnecessary and useless, and that was a lie. But didn't he explain that those statements were necessary forms of deception because he was concerned about panic buying, depriving the hospital, the the frontline workers of of personal protective equipment? Well, I mean, the question is, was this the only alternative? We could have followed the example of other countries, and the president had the powers to do it, to simply nationalize the supply, take N95 masks uh, out of the, the market, while at the same time speeding production, which, of course, the administration totally failed to do, unlike the countries in Asia, which were so successful at this. So, you know, there was a real alternative here, but also the price for this policy. I'm not sure that it took away that much of a criminally diminished stockpile anyway, 
But what it did is it destroyed a lot of trust in the voices of, of the scientists in the administration and also about the use of, of, of face masks. Fauci should just gone on or, you know, insisted, look, N95s have to be used by the medical community full stop. But the rest of you put mask on. And ordinary medical common sense and the universal practice in countries in East Asia was, of course, you wear a mask. They might be terribly effective, but they are effective to some extent. You don't have to be a microbiologist to understand that. So Fauci obviously has made this calculation that he can be more effective working on the inside, standing up next to Trump and Pence at public events, that that's more effective than if he quit. Look, up until January, until the pandemic, it became clear that this would become a pandemic. Fauci could legitimately say, look, I'm the director of a small but critical government agency, and uh, I'm not going to risk its vital research program by making political statements or what could be construed as political statements. But look, by March, Fauci's position was transformed. He was at the center of the debate about this. He enjoyed a public stature and credibility that no one else had. If he'd been fired in March, it wouldn't have removed him from the stage or denied him a bully pulpit for advocacy at all. You think his authority and prestige would be increased if he resigned in protest, but but what action, say he did it uh, this week, what actions would he call for now if he, if he broke with Trump? Well, first of all, he would acknowledge to a much greater extent than he has with the statements he alluded to at the beginning of the total collapse and total loss of control over the pandemic. Trump's turned back to his real priorities, like ending DACA and ending Obamacare and uh, stirring up all the races in, in the nation. This is a catastrophe. And you have to ask what the inside strategy of Fauci has achieved. And at the end of the day, very little or almost nothing. What we've needed since at least March is a real tribune of the people to get up and address all the issues that have been submerged or uh, censored. For instance, at the very beginning of, of March, it was clear because of the cases in Seattle, in a nursing home in Seattle, and the fact that they spread like wildfire to other nursing homes, the nursing homes and prisons would become mortuaries. And indeed, 40 to 50 percent of the 130,000 Americans who died have died in a nursing homes. And by the way, half the people who died in nursing homes have been African-Americans. Nobody was talking about a national emergency task force treating it like a hurricane and disaster and getting out to the nursing homes and, you know, in prisons. That's an instance of something taken off the table. Another thing, which I've written a lot about, and this is cuts to the, to the quick for so many millions of working American families have been the failure of the Labor Department, which, of course, is under the command of Anthony Scalia's son, to issue any kind of required ordinances, obligatory guidelines for worker safety. And that department, by the way, has issued, as the last time I looked, 
out of thousands of complaints, it's, it's issued a ruling only in one case. The real priority of the Republican Party and of uh, Mitch McConnell has been this campaign to give absolute immunity to corporations and so on in the slaughter. I mean, we could, we could go on, but there is a series of absolute turning points here when we needed a tribune with the kind of credibility and uh, public acclaim that Fauci has. We're obviously not having expected to see that from the bunker where Joe Biden lives most of the time. And his campaign seems to be a matter of uh, Trump versus Trump. I'm not saying that Anthony Fauci is a bad man. I'm saying, in, in fact, he's a scientific hero for his accomplishments in the past. But right now, he, in effect, is colluding with this insane response campaign where the president's going around urging his legions to come unmasked to rallies, denying everything that his scientific advisors to say. We're not getting loud enough voices from the Democratic side. So Fauci is in a unique position. The leverage he has is fantastic, apart from maybe the 30% of the hardcore Trump vote who wants to burn him at the stake tomorrow morning. But apart from that, he enjoys popularity 70-80% and is a hero to so many people. Mike Davis, he's writing about Anthony Fauci right now for The Nation magazine. Thank you, Mike. You're quite welcome, John. Now it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour. Stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. Boy, are those kids in trouble this week. For that, we turn, of course, to Amy Willens, our chief Jared correspondent. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and recent recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, lately we've been hearing about a new Trump, Mary. Who the heck is Mary Trump and why is the president suing her? There are a lot more Trumps than we had reckoned for. She's his brother Fred's daughter. His brother Fred died in 1981 at age 42 uh, from complications related to alcohol abuse. Very sad. Mary was only 16. The reason we're hearing about Mary is because she's written a book. The Trumps are very literary, you may notice. Uh, She's written a book, uh, and it's called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. The Trump family is trying to suppress the book by claiming that Mary is in violation of an NDA, non-disclosure agreement, that was signed in 2001, two years after Fred Trump died. Fred the patriarch, not her dad. Uh, Mary claims she is not in violation of this because this non-disclosure agreement was filled with incorrect data about the estate and that she would never have uh, signed a non-disclosure agreement had she realized that she was uh, signing away a fortune rather than a nothing. All this has to do with the aftermath of the death of Fred Sr., the patriarch, and it's a complicated and exciting story. Uh, the will of Fred Trump, the patriarch, was written in consultation with Donald Trump when Fred was very ill toward the end of his life. And the uh, alcoholic son, Fred, 
and his family were left out of the uh, estate that the rest of the Trump children inherited. So there's a lot of bad blood. And Mary and her brother, Fred III, because of course it's a kingly uh, dynasty, <laughs> sued the Trump family when they realized they'd been left out of the will. They challenged the will and thereby inciting uh, Donald Trump to great anger and he stopped paying medical bills for Fred III's son who has cerebral palsy. That was the upshot of when you sue Trump's, you lose pay. Most families, by the way, when they have a lot of money, they take care of the weakest members of the family, not so in the Trump family. And uh, what about Ivanka? I have not seen her in the news much lately. She's been sort of in a quiet phase publicly. She's busy with saving the planet. So she is now in charge of the One Trillion Trees Act and the Great American Outdoors Act for the White House. This is a global effort to plant trees, to conserve, restore, and grow forests around the world that was sort of fueled at Davos. She's the front person for climate change because they've realized this might be something of an important issue in the upcoming elections. But she can never say she's thinking about climate change because as you know, John, climate change is a phrase that cannot be said in the Trump administration. It cannot be written by anyone in the Trump administration, whether they're a scientist, a political figure or anything. So that's out of the question. But she, so she said, this administration has made protecting and promoting healthy and resilient forests a priority, but that's not true. So I just wanted to add a little note here that Donald Trump and the officials he's appointed have systematically undermined, degraded, and outright attacked the laws that protect our public lands, the agencies that manage them, and the resources those lands represent, including our national parks. Um, Bruce Westerman will be working by Ivanka's side. He's a Republican from Arkansas, a congressman. Here's how he thinks about forests. Although technology has changed the importance of healthy forests, the forest product economy and their role in conservation have never been more important. So that's what really the One Trillion Trees is about to the Trump administration, forest products. So that's wood products, paper, etc. Now, another thing you make out of uh, paper products is surgical masks. Right. But do they want to wear masks? It's a question in the family. There's a certain uh, discord in the family over masks. And Ivanka has been a pro-masker. I'm sure that's a term now. She uh, was shown early on in the uh, pandemic making masks with her daughter. And uh, she herself is still wearing masks. She was just pictured with her friend, Bruce Westerman, her trillion tree man, both wearing masks in the picture. And this caused a Twitter storm among Trump supporters. And I wanna just read for my audience, our audience, um, one of the great Twitter posts that was put up, but there were many, many just like this, but this one sums it all up. WTF Ivanka, why do you support something you know has sinister intentions? Take off the mask. You're not a disease carrying death bringer, and this is not a real pandemic. I know you know that. Very disappointing to watch you play along. WTF Ivanka, and that takes us to Don Jr. and his girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle. They do not wear masks, and Kim, as she is known, known in the tabloids, was in the headlines, page one, on the 4th of July. 
Right. So Kimmy, Kim Guilfoyle, who is Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend, they went to a party in the Hamptons where there was no social distancing and no mask wearing. Then they went down to Tulsa. And then on their way to Mount Rushmore, Kim's test came back positive. So this is what happens when you don't wear a mask, by the way. So now she is off the campaign trail and her husband is self-isolating, he says. her No, sorry, not her husband, her boyfriend, Donald Trump Jr., is self-isolating. I wonder, of course, because I'm a mother, whether he's self-isolating and not seeing his five children with his former wife, Vanessa. And of course, we must talk about Jared. You're our chief Jared correspondent. What is this week's Jared update? Well, Jared seems to have lost some of his cachet and control at the White House, or at least sources in the White House are spinning it that way, because he's supposedly too progressive for the Trump base by promoting criminal justice reform. Explaining the president's feelings about Kushner's impact on the 2020 campaign, someone close to Trump paraphrased comments he supposedly gave, saying, no more of Jared's woke shit, meaning that the president is not into uh, reigning in the police and that he'll end his uh, support for federal police reform legislation this year, which was weak support in any case. It's an effective acceptance that Trump believes he can't really pull in black voters with the amount he's willing to go forward in dealing with the police situation. No more Jared woke shit. And finally, we get to little Eric, as we call him. He made a mistake last week. So Eric Trump tweeted a photo of Chelsea Clinton's wedding. Bill Clinton escorting Chelsea down the aisle in which the recently arrested heiress and suspected pedophile Ghislaine Maxwell can be seen in attendance. And under the picture, he wrote, birds of a feather, meaning Bill and Ghislaine and Jeffrey by extension. In any case, almost immediately on Twitter, the Twitter universe responded with many, many photos of Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein cozying up to Donald and Melania Trump. And we've all seen those photos. Anyway, soon after, Eric rushed and deleted his tweet without explanation. This has been the Children's Hour with Amy Willens. Tune in again next week for more stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. Thank you, Amy. Thanks. Next up, Black Lives Matter and Sandra Bland's was one of them. It's been five years since Sandra Bland died in a Texas jail after spending three days there. She was only 28. She wasn't shot in bed like Breonna Taylor in Louisville. She wasn't shot in the back like Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta. And she wasn't killed by a cop's knee on her neck like George Floyd in Minneapolis. What happened to Sandra Bland? Debbie Nathan found some answers. Her powerful and moving report was the cover story in The Nation magazine in 2016. Debbie Nathan reports on immigration, race, and sexual politics. She's covered Texas for many years, including her award-winning work for This American Life. We spoke about Sandra Bland in 2016 
I started with the two dozen videos Sandra Bland had posted on her Facebook page. She called them Sandy Speaks. I asked Debbie Nathan to tell us about Sandy Speaks. Well, Sandy was speaking through her smartphone videos. Uh, she used to get into her car when she went out for lunch from her work, and she would talk about things that she was thinking about. And during the months when she was doing these videos, she was mostly thinking about the same issues that Black Lives Matter is thinking about. But I want to say also that she had more than videos. Um, sometimes more than once a day she would post, you know, the way people do on Facebook. She put these videos on Facebook. But she also had postings where she linked to articles and she just kind of talked the way people do. And those are also equally interesting. Very few people have read them. In those uh, postings, she often really implied things about her life that even went beyond sometimes what she had on the videos. And there was that greeting that she opened her posts with. She did. She would say, Good morning, my beautiful kings and queens, or good afternoon, my beautiful kings and queens. And she said that about all of us. We were all her kings and queens, and I'm white. She was a very ecumenical person. So Sandra Bland, we're calling her Sandy, is that right? That's what she called herself. That's what everyone who knew her called her. So okay. I guess I am doing it myself. Okay, I'll join you. Sandy went to a mostly white high school, I learned from your piece in The Nation, in suburban Chicago. Sounds like she was great in high school. She was. She was a very good student. She was an honor student. Um, she joined just about every club that there was. Uh, she was much beloved um, by students and by her teachers, even some of the teachers who were not so used to maybe a style of, you know, she was a very opinionated, feisty young woman, and there were very few blacks at the school. So I think that she navigated being black at a practically all-white school in a very brilliant way. And your report, she was the only black cheerleader, and she played trombone in the band. And for college, she got a music scholarship to Prairie View A&M University, which I understand is near Houston, a historically black school. Sounds like she was great in college. She was. She majored in animal science, which might sound a little unusual because she was a big city girl. But Prairie View is an A&M in the same way that the big there's a big agricultural and mechanical college in Texas that everyone knows about A&M. Prairie View was the black A&M. Prairie View was founded when black people were not allowed to go to white colleges. It's a post-Civil War black college. So, you know, there's like this big agricultural component there. And um, she got interested in animal science. And she told many people that she wanted to be an FDA inspector. Then she graduated in 2009 and, and started looking for a job. 2009, that was right after the economic collapse of fall 2008. What was it like for a black 22-year-old looking for a job in 2009? It was terrible. It was just, you know, black, young black graduates, BAs, were many times more likely to be unemployed than white graduates. Black women had it even worse. They had it worse than black men. A, a white high school female graduate during the last few years has had a better chance of getting a job than a young black woman with a BA degree. And it hasn't really gotten any better for young black women. And then Sandy Bland started getting stopped for traffic violations. What was her experience? 
there's no income tax in Texas. And so a lot of municipalities and the state itself raise money by putting all kinds of um, charges onto traffic tickets. And I mean, they're just every charge you can imagine. You know, there's charges for treating sick people. There are charges for um, having increased surveillance at the border. There are charges, all kinds of things. Um, So that creates this great incentive to stop people and to ticket them. And she was constantly being ticketed. This is a huge issue in Texas. And black people are stopped and ticketed more often than white people. All the statistics show that. So she was stopped quite a bit, but actually I interviewed friends of hers who had the same experience. It's a very common experience in Texas. And how much money did she end up owing on her traffic tickets? Well, you know, funny that you should ask that because I think everybody wants to focus on Texas. She owed several hundred dollars in Texas, but later, I just have to say this, she went back to Illinois and it was even worse in Illinois because Illinois does the same thing. In fact, lots of municipalities collect money from traffic tickets to put in their general fund. So not only did she have hundreds of dollars in Texas in traffic tickets, but when she went to Illinois, she had thousands of dollars. Again, the same thing in Illinois. All of the Department of Transportation statistics show that black people, particularly in the county, the suburban county where she was, are many times more likely to be ticketed than white people. I learned from your piece that in Texas, or at least in in Houston, if you can't pay your traffic tickets, you go to jail. And Sandy Bland went to jail for how long? Well, she was in jail sitting down, I think they call it sitting down her traffic tickets or sitting out her traffic tickets for about three days because she was in a county where she got $100 a day to do that. There are other counties where you only get $50 a day. And that, again, that's like sort of the the work of poor people is to be in jail paying their traffic tickets sitting there. This was the Harris County Jail in Texas, county jails are usually horrible places. What's what's the Harris County Jail like? Yeah, that's Houston. Um, it's the big jail in Houston, and it's got, I don't know, 9,000 people in it on any given day. And it's really, really a bad place. It's been investigated in the last five years or so, which would have been the time she was there by the DOJ. And they found that, you know, it's a violent place. Um, it's a neglectful place. It's a filthy place. It's like physically filthy So, you know, it must have been a very, very unpleasant experience for this middle class girl, particularly to be sitting in that jail. Some of the traffic stops also led to marijuana charges. That's right. Um, Also in Texas and particularly in Harris County, which is Houston, uh, black people, even though they have pretty much the same rate of smoking weed as everybody else in the United States, are far more prone to be stopped And she was stopped on traffic tickets. And then there was one time when after her car was impounded, actually, um, it was a DUI. She was coming back from a party. She had a little too much to drink. They impounded her car. And while they were impounding it, they saw a little baggie with just a tiny, tiny bit of marijuana in it. Um, In most states, you're not going to have too much happen to you. But Texas is very harsh. And um, she was slapped with a misdemeanor charge. And she spent 30 days locked up. So when she got out of jail in Texas, she went back to Illinois. And what happened there? She had the same problem. She could not get a good job. She was working all the time, but she was just working temporary. And she was working at places like McDonald's. She was having the same problems with being stopped and ticketed. 
And um, she did have a um, godmother who was very supportive of her and who apparently she had an easy time speaking with, um, more than she did maybe with her family. And her godmother, uh, unfortunately, got sick with cancer and she died. And I think that that was probably Sandy's real support. And her, her godmother died. And clearly that was traumatic for her. And somewhere in there, Sandy also had a miscarriage. Is that right? She, according to some records that have emerged, she reported to a doctor that she'd had what's called an ectopic pregnancy. It's not a miscarriage. It's much more traumatic physically than a miscarriage. She had a pregnancy, she reported, that lands instead of in your uterus in your fallopian tubes, and it can't go anywhere there except to kill you if the embryo is not removed surgically. It's a very dangerous condition. So that was another traumatic event for her. And she told people around this time that she was depressed. What do we know about that? She had a friend who I spoke with who told me that she did mention this to him. And he was a little bit taken aback because he told me that this is not really talked about in African-American culture and it's not really dealt with, you know, in the way of saying, oh, you should go get therapy. If you read her her Facebook and if you watch those videos, she was speaking about depression. She was speaking about her depression she had a couple videos where she told her listeners that she was depressed. And she said, this is a very big problem in black culture. We don't talk about this and we really need to. It's a very serious problem. She um, linked in her Facebook postings to articles that were emerging from what, they, from what are called womanist psychotherapists, um, black feminists who are dealing with women's issues in therapy and mental health, you know, really discussing this problem, the fact that more black people than white people are suffering from depression and women have it worse and women are, you know, their, their um, level of treatment is just, they're not getting treatment partly because they can't afford it. Health insurance is still not adequate and partly because the culture um, really mitigates against it, as I've said, against um, defining it this way and getting treatment. And she posted about that more than once. So it's very sad that you don't see a response to these videos or to these posts on her Facebook page. You don't see people saying, oh, what can I do to help? Let me refer you to my therapist. You know, there's nothing like that. It's like everyone is pretty interested in responding to her posts about police violence, you know, against black people. But when it comes to her discussing her own problems, there's a kind of silence. It's as though... She's not speaking. It's almost like people aren't hearing. She's trying to speak, but people are not hearing. She's served time in jail. She's depressed. She's lost her godmother. And she applies for a job back at Prairie View in Houston, her old school. What happens then? She applied for a job and she got a call or a communication from Prairie View. And they said, we'd like to interview you tomorrow. She just got in her car, put some clothes in the back seat, and she left. She didn't know whether she'd have a job or not, but she went to the interview. She had actually applied for three jobs, and um, one of those jobs was really up her alley. It was a professional job for somebody with a BA, and it had to do with agriculture. One of the jobs was just a low-paying clerical job that was only going to last for a few weeks. So she interviewed for these various jobs, and she was hired for the 
clerical job. It, it was a very, you know, a very tenuous situation. It was only going to last, like I said, you know, for less than a month and it wasn't going to pay very much. But I think I can, you know, I think it's easy to remember that feeling when you're that age. Like, I've got to get out of here. I've got to go someplace that I love. I've got to try to make a new life for myself. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but like somehow I'll just try to make it work. She went down and had, you know, she got the interview. She got tentatively hired, but Prairie View is actually a very strict place and a conservative place when it comes to the box. Sandy was a victim of the box. She had numerous misdemeanors, and it's clear from her Facebook that that it hounded her when she applied for jobs, that she had to tell her uh, when she applied that she had a uh, record. And she got a letter with her hire letter. It was a tentative hire letter saying, now we have to check your background, to do a background check. And if we find that you have a current criminal record, we can rescind this offer. And so that's the situation that she was in when she was brutalized by Brian Incendia, the state trooper. So the same day that she signed the papers for this new job offer, she got pulled over again by the police in another traffic stop. Tell us about that. She was turning in her car outside of the campus onto a main road that goes through this town. And there was a a trooper behind her, a state trooper. And um, he apparently speeded up and she interpreted that as some kind of an emergency move that he was trying to go chase somebody ahead of her, she said. And so without signaling, she went into the right lane. She changed lanes. And then he stopped her because she had changed lanes. And I mean, in a way, like being from Texas myself and actually being from that part of Texas, I'm, I almost think she was sort of like the Emmett Till of this situation. She responded in a matter of fact way, not a friendly way to the, to the trooper, but certainly not an uncivil way by any means. And she didn't sort of do that, oh, officer, oh, I'm so sorry, which really is what you have to do there. And she had out-of-state plates. And I think that um, this officer just decided that she wasn't being deferential enough. And he started making demands on her. And they weren't even legal demands. You know, he said, would you mind putting out your cigarette? And she said, why do I have to do that? And she asked about 16 questions, which he never answered. And instead, the thing just went from zero to 100 in a confrontation that ended up with her being shoved to the ground, just really manhandled. I mean, it's it's so disturbing to see the autopsy and see the scratches on her back and and the leaf, the little piece of leaf stuck into her back. It's clear that he pushed her down and really brutalized her. And then he arrested her for assaulting him. And that's how she ended up in the jail with a felony charge. And they put her in solitary. I I don't understand why that happened. It happened because she had a felony assault charge on a public officer. And once that happens, there's a flow chart at the jail. And, um, you know, they put your name at the top and they just sort of run these little arrows from, you know, what did you do and where does that go in the flow chart to which cell you should be in? So she was classified as what's called medium assaultive. And it's a little tiny jail. So there actually were several women in a less secure room 
who some of who were um, sitting down their traffic tickets <laughs> and they were playing cards and telling jokes and just trying to get through this. That's where she should have been. But she was put in this in this other cell, which that weekend just didn't have any other assaultive people. So it wasn't like they said, we're putting you in solitary. They put her in a room that just that weekend was solitary. She was all by herself for two and a half days. Some of our friends, you know, think she didn't commit suicide, as the police reported. You've looked into this pretty carefully. What have you concluded? I have looked into this very, very carefully. It would have taken a conspiracy of several people in that jail, including the administration, to kill this woman and leave absolutely no evidence of violence. It is so beyond the pale of probability or possibility. You know, and I have to say also that in order to even imagine this, you would have to imagine that the guards, half of whom, or maybe more than half of whom, were black and Latino themselves, were incredibly, incredibly brilliant, that they were brilliant, psychopathic conspirators. And I find it disturbing that 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 idea of racism, that, that that's what we should focus on when we think about racism. I mean, you know, racism is a series of institutions and they affect millions of people as we've looked at all these institutions that affected Sandy, the, the traffic stops, the marijuana bus, all of these things that affect so many millions of young black people. That's where we should be focusing, not on psychopathic conspiracy theories in a jail where there's no evidence. So what can we say about what happened to Sandra Bland? I think Sandra was killed, but not literally in that cell that day. I think that she died a thousand cuts in the same way that so many other people do, so many other black people do on a day-to-day basis. The the insults that they suffer through racist institutions. That's what we learn from her death. And I think that the other thing that we learn is that, you know, if we're thinking about black deaths, we have to think about something bigger, which is black lives. That when we say black lives matter, we're talking about black lives in their pain, in their imperfection, in their trouble. So we can say that black lives matter and hers was one of them. Debbie Nathan's report on the life and death of Sandra Bland was the cover story in The Nation in April 2016. We spoke with her about it four years ago for this podcast. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, 
and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.